does everybody feel appropriately, properly greeted now? You feel appropriately welcomed, um, celebrated? Um, Let me just think. God is good. All the time. Are you sure? That's, that's right. Very there's there's death and taxes in Jesus. That's right. And because of Jesus, the, the other two things don't matter so much. Uh, tax tax season is uh, is also an important thing that we should all celebrate, right? And so, that's right. For for Laura celebrates, Laura's uh, favorite day of the year is April the fifteenth, the day the day after. Uh, all right, so. That's really interesting. Somebody did a, a, a survey uh, a few years ago, <clears throat> uh, and I forget what it was. I, I think it was one of those, uh, they went and surveyed a bunch of experts. Uh, an expert is somebody who comes from farther than 80 miles away and carries a briefcase, right? Uh, but some fam- famous experts who uh, were, were rarely respected in their field, you know, whether it was picking stocks or, or predicting social, cultural trends, people who make all of their money from being uh, all of this experience and all of this study for how they, uh, how they did their job. And they were given a list of <coughs> propositions. Uh, of project five years out in the future, ten years out in the future, I forget what it was. Um, and based on your best experience, why do you predict this outcome is going to be? You're the experts. You're the ones who write the articles. You're the ones who write the books. You're, you're the ones who have the reputation. Uh, five years out in the future, when they went back and tabulated the outcomes, 90% of them were wrong. <clears throat> and the reason that they were wrong was because they were so certain that they were right that they didn't do the proper research and they missed big trends. They, nick, they missed big indicators. They, didn't, they felt like because they were, <clears throat> they, they were certain and they knew the right answer and the right outcome that they didn't have to be like mortal people and stop and do research and ask good questions and do their due diligence. 90% of them were wrong. It would have been, in the words of the people who compiled the report, it would actually a monkey throwing a dart at a dartboard would have had a better chance of being right than any of the folks who did the research because... Um, because they were so sure that they were right that they it never occurred to them that they could be wrong. 
Um, here's a picture. You've seen this? this is, I think this is the same picture that's in the, ca- the Capitol, hanging in the Capitol. <coughs> and Davy Crockett, is he's famous for a lot of things. Um, but there's one particular quote that he's known for. <coughs> and it's this. I leave this rule for others when I'm dead. Be always sure you're right. Then go ahead. Be always sure that you're right. Then full speed ahead. Be always sure you're right. Then go ahead. <coughs> that was uh, it was his motto. Uh, except it was, uh, and, and sometimes his personal battle cry. Except he would shorten it in the in the when he was in the battle or when he, when he was engaged in some kind of conflict. He would just shout out, "Go ahead." Uh, uh, it's, that's sound advice, but have you ever been absolutely, positively convinced that you were right, so you went ahead and you kept going ahead and you kept going ahead only to eventually discover that you were terribly, tragically wrong? Have you ever had that experience? Chuck, Chuck's had that experience. Uh, uh, so... So we need to stop and think about this a little bit because being certain that you're right and then turning out to be wrong can have consequences. Um, one of the consequences being there. You're good. So remember, we last week with the adventure where of the stoning of Stephen. And I'm just going to read you a little bit from Acts chapter 7, uh, right at the very end. They cried out with a loud voice, and they covered their ears, and they rushed to him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And we all figured, remember, we found out what stoning really meant last week. Remember that? You drag somebody up to the, it has to be at least a two-story tall building, and then you throw them down, and if that doesn't kill them, then the two witnesses that accused him have to get a great big, huge boulder and together they have to lift it up and they have to push it off on top of him. And if that doesn't kill him, then people can pick up whatever they can find, rocks, clubs, uh, and smash them until he's finally dead. Um, so it's actually it's a very inexact science. But anyhow, they, they laid, the witnesses laid their feet laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who we know eventually had his name changed and became Paul. And they went on stoning Stephen, which meant that the fall didn't kill him and the boulder on top of it didn't kill him because they had to keep on stoning him. Uh, And the whole time they were stoning him, he kept saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Having said this, he fell asleep. Then we get, that's, and that's the way chapter, eight, chapter 7 ends. And then we get here. Verse 1, and Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Absolutely positive, absolutely certain that it was the right thing to do. Blasphemer. He's going to. He's going to bring the wrath of the Romans down on us. 
He's going to fracture the city of Jerusalem. He's he's talking against. He's he, he's talking lies about uh, God and God's kingdom. He's trying to trick people into believing that Jesus is the Son of God, which is so wrong, 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 wrong. Make him stop. Make him stop. Make him stop right now. He was absolutely convinced that Saul was not only in error, but he was so much in error that he was dangerous. Make him stop. Make him stop. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles who were hunkered down in the upper room somewhere. And then some devout men buried Stephen and made lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church. Entering house after house and dragging off men and women. And he would put them in prison, throw them in prison, where who knows what happened to them after that. Because remember, the president had been set, right? The Sanhedrin broke clear Black letter law about the way you're supposed to try somebody and the way you're supposed to execute somebody. They're using, uh, they just lost their minds and acted like a mob and they just killed Stephen because he was considered dangerous. He was like a, a, like a, a rabid dog just on the loose and, they had to, on the roof, loose and they had to stop him. Make him stop, make him stop. <clears throat> That's right. And so they... Um, and but once you set that precedent, once you have crossed a line that you shouldn't have crossed, sometimes you don't find your way back. Sometimes you don't know how to get back. And so they escalated and started arresting everybody they could find. Paul, now, so, so Paul was a protege of Gamaliel. He was anointed to be Eventually, probably the head of the Sanhedrin. Uh, he was the, the golden boy of the next generation of the leaders of Judaism. Uh, and he felt a lot of responsibility, I'm sure, to keep the faith pure and to keep the faith safe. And so he was right out there leading the charge. And all the rest of the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were just saying, look at him. It makes me so proud. One of these days, it, you know, the future of our nation is in good hands as long as we have young people like Saul going out there, dragging off innocent men and women and throwing them in jail and cracking their heads together and hauling them in to be executed. So um, there was this, in short order, the city of Jerusalem was just consumed with what you would, for lack of a better term, he would call mob rule. And Paul was convinced that he was right. He was convinced that it was he was this was so important that he was so right that it was okay to ignore uh, the written laws about how you handle situations like this. So I'm going to ask you one more time. Have you ever been absolutely, positively sure you were right? I mean, you prayed about it. You prayed about it over and over. 
and maybe you even researched it in the Word, and you found verses to back up your position. And, and after you prayed and fasted and studied and you took action, maybe you even did it with a heavy heart, like, you know, this is going to hurt me a lot harder than worse than it hurts you. But you were convinced you were right. And maybe the truth is that on the facts, on the face of the facts, it, you were right. You were convinced that, that your action was the right thing to do, and it all blew up in your face. I, um, I know what that feels like. Uh, there's not uh, a worse sicker, more horrible feeling in the world than to look backwards at path of destruction, of unintended consequences, of things that broke that you didn't intend to break. Uh, when you're, in the spite of what you consider to be your good intentions, in spite of your considering to be, I was just following what I felt like I heard from God. Now what you've got is a horrible train wreck. It took Paul a long time to realize what he'd done. But you know, because Paul had what I'm just going to call a, as a resume of righteousness. Which, which he gave to us over in Philippians chapter 3. Where he says, if anybody has, else has a mind to be confident in the flesh, in, in term, be confident in their accomplishments, in their abilities, and their qualifications, like, you know, I'm the expert. Hi, I'm Saul, and I'm here to help you. Uh, just follow my lead because I'm the expert here. Uh, if anybody had a right to demand that kind of respect and those kind of qualifications, it would be Saul. And here's his resume. Uh, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, which means, you know, a lot of people came into Judaism through the back door as proselytes, God-fearers who eventually submitted to circumcision, but they came from somewhere else. But he could trace his lineage all the way back to Benjamin, to the the tribe of Benjamin. And he had an impeccable uh, bloodline, his genealogy, Men, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. At, to the law, he was a Pharisee, which means he was more zealous for keeping all of the little details of the law more than anybody else. As to zeal, let me, let me prove to you how much I care about uh, God. Let me show you how much I, I care about the faith. Let me tell you how much I, I care about purity and righteousness. I went out and I started finding people who were in error, and I arrested them, and I knocked their heads together, and I threw them off a building. You can, you can be more zealous than that, right? And I can justify every bit of it in Scripture. I like this. As a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless, which means that the people who knew Saul best could not find any evidence in his life that he had ever broken a single law. Blameless. That's 
Blameless means, no, not even a little tiny one. He was one of those dudes that was tithing out of his mint crop from the, the herbs in his garden. What do you do if you have 10% of the mint in your garden and you bring that to the temple? What do they do with that? I guess they put it in their ice, put it in their iced tea. That's all I can think of. No, I guess so. So it wasn't for Saul and his mint garden that they would be lacking, I suppose. But I mean, there was now Saul, as we later find out, was breaking all sorts of laws, but they were the laws that were in his mind. The, the things like coveting that nobody knew about but him, which was eventually was his downfall that convinced him that he was a sinner in need of grace. We find out about that in, in Romans chapter 7. But, but his whole resume was, if anybody could trust their ability to be right, then it was me. How could it have all turned out so bad? He did. He does say this. Whatever things I thought were important to me, those things I have now counted loss and garbage for the sake of Christ. After he gave you all his resume, he, he discovered, you know, I thought I was right the whole time. It turns out that I couldn't have been more wrong. And looking back on that time in my life, I realize now that all those things that I thought I was right about were just like garbage. It was all garbage compared to just knowing Jesus. See if I can make this make sense. I'll start out trying to say it this way. There is no right way to do a wrong thing. There is no right reason for doing a wrong thing. There, or you could even say it this way. Uh, you can't do something in the wrong way and still be right. Maybe Saul's, when he was Saul, his motivations were, he, he, he thought he was defending the faith. He thought he was defending Jerusalem. He thought he was defi- defending historic Judaism. <clears throat> and he could look out there, and as near as he could tell, based on what he understood, what the Christians were doing, it was wrong and it was dangerous. But here's where things start to slip off the track. Instead of going and having a talk with Peter, and instead of going and sitting down with James and John and uh, talking through the scriptures and praying about stuff, and instead of trying to make a connection based on a relationship, he... He started focusing on destruction. He, he was controlled by anger. He was controlled by fear. The, 
what you want to look, whenever you're trying to figure out is, am I, am I really right? Am I really, really right? You have to, one of the things you have to do is you have to look at the fruit. When your right actions produce wrong fruit, you're wrong. Even if you've got documentation that says, I am right on the facts. I am right on the history. I am right on the testimony. If out of that sense of being right, you, be, you become controlled by anger, bitterness, revenge, self-righteousness, start being judgmental, gladly breaking the rules in pursuit of proving that you're right. At that point, you're not right. You are wrong. No matter what, if you're looking at the behavior of somebody else and saying, you know, that, that's wrong and I need, to, I need to stop them. If in the process of stopping them, your behavior mirrors something that, that they're doing or even worse than they're doing, it's wrong. There's no uh, right way you can do a wrong thing. If we're doing something that's wrong in the name of righteousness, it's just wrong. And Saul carried this around with him for a long time. The first tip-off that we are really wrong is the fruit it produces in ourselves and the destructive impact that it has on the lives of other people. I don't think that there's any one area where... as a group, the body of Christ has failed more miserably over the last 2,000 years than by justifying uh, sinful behavior in the name of being right. Um, and, I, you know, I don't, you know, I could give you lots of, uh, of illustrations from history. I could give you, I mean, we could talk about the Crusades. We could talk about the Inquisition. We could talk about uh, the zillion different ways that the Reformation turned believers into uh, soldiers who uh, got crosswise with, with, you know, armed battles between Calvinists and Arminians. Uh, I can, we could talk even up today uh, about the, the number of people who, out of a zealousness, Zealousness to stand up for family values have persecuted uh, in destructive uh, ways people who are kind of confused about sexual orientation or about abortion uh, and trying to and standing up for right standards. We have uh, brought shame and disgrace on the name of Jesus. I, I can. We could talk for a long time about the number of churches that split over the color of the carpet or the interpretation of one single passage of Scripture. I, uh, years and years and years ago, I won't... Uh, I was in... Uh, I had an opportunity to take uh, the first two tracks of the Doctor of Ministry program for, uh, uh, in Church Evangelism at Fuller Seminary. And so we studied a lot about evangelism. And I won't name the denomination, but uh, the professor, a guy named Peter Wagner, mentioned 
uh, uh, so I won't remember the <coughs> he he <coughs> mentioned the name of the denomination. I will not mention the name of the denomination, but I will mention the professor's name, Peter Wagner, who said in this one particular denomination, their number one church multiplication strategy was to just wait for people in the church to get mad at each other and split. Then they would send in uh, somebody to prop that church up and they moved across town and now they had, uh, they started out with one church in town, now they had two churches and if they waited for another couple of years, then they'd have four churches. Uh, and and he was, he was kind of joking, but not really. Because historically, most churches... When they split, they don't split over, you know what, brother? We've just got way too many ch- people in this church. I mean, this is crazy. Why would anybody want to have 300 people in church on Sunday morning? That's just nuts. Uh, so I tell you what, we're going to take 100 of our people, and we're going to send them to the other side of town or the other, you know, to a town down the road and have them start another church and bless somebody else with the church. Now, that. That's legitimate. That does happen. There are churches that legitimately do that and bless them. But uh, most of the time when churches split, it's because I, I can't stand to be in the same room with you on Sunday mornings anymore. Uh, uh, so... Um, so... When you're looking at the first, the first tip that you think you're right but you're really wrong is the fruit it produces in our own attitudes and our own actions and the subsequent pain that it ends up causing other people. Because since I'm right and you're wrong, that justifies me being able to treat you in a way that is not gracious or loving or in a way that is not loving or patient or kind or gentle or good or faith. I mean, you see where I'm going? It gives me the, it gives me the excuse to not have to interact with you under the, using the fruit of the Holy Spirit because you don't deserve to be treated in a loving way because you're wrong. And in this case, for... Saul, you're wrong, so I'm throwing you in jail. You're wrong, so I'm throwing you off a building. You're wrong. Uh, being, being, once we made up our mind that we are right, and we take David, David Crockett's advice, be right. If you're sure you're right, go ahead. You may be just walking off a cliff. Uh, so what's the remedy? I said, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul kind of tells the rest of the story. We're going to find, we're going to get to the road to Damascus later on in the book of Acts, so I won't have to tell that part. But this, as he's writing to the, the Corinthians 25 years later, he's talking about all the people that got to see Jesus face to face, including him. I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. In the midst of the evil things that Paul did 
in the blindness of being right. Being convinced that you're right, let's, let's just make sure one thing's perfectly clear. Being motivated out of a sense that I know I'm right, so I'm going ahead, can sometimes be, I mean, you have to, sometimes you just have to do that and, and you have to stand alone. But it can also be one of the most blinding experiences. Uh, once, because just like those experts I told you about at the beginning, once you're already convinced that you're right, you quit thinking. You quit being open to alternate points of view. You, you dig into your position. You look at ways to protect your side instead of being open to learning new stuff. And it, it, you, you create intellectually, sometimes spiritually dishonest uh, mistakes just because I know I'm right, so I don't have to listen to anybody. I don't have to be open to change. I don't, have to, I don't have to be open to understanding anything. I don't have to be open to the fact that maybe maybe you're right and, and maybe Jesus did rise from the dead. Um, no, I've got to shut you down. I've got to shut you down. I've got to make this stop. So Paul had to, first of all, repent and face the fact that he was wrong and not make any excuses. Listen, it's one thing to explain how something happened. But explaining it is not the same as excusing it. Okay, so, so you've got, so, so Saul, uh, because of his resume, he was set up just constitutionally to resist uh, the gospel message at every turn because his whole training was, you know you're right, you know you're right, and, it, and you can't give in, you can't make any, you can't compromise, you can't make any, ch- you can't let error cre- creep in even in a little tiny way because we're going to end up back in Babylon again. We're going to end up uh, failing God one more time and some other invasion is going to come and they're going to conquer us and they're going to scatter us all over the world again so you can't, you can't bend at all. You can't bend at all. You can't make even little tiny exceptions. You can't, you can't entertain the possibility that maybe the Christians might be right. Maybe these people talking about Jesus being raised from the dead might be right. Because what if they're wrong? So, so that was Paul's DNA. And he was set up more than anybody else to resist the gospel. He was trained. He was like the, the spiritual watchdog. Anybody that's going to come and, tr- come and lead the, the Sanhedrin astray and lead the Jews astray has got to get past Saul first. That's just what he was bred to do. So, all right, so you can explain a little bit. Maybe understand a little bit how, Paul, how, how Saul behaved the way he did. But doesn't excuse it. There's no excuse for ignoring all the laws that he said he's sworn to uphold. There's no reason for throwing people off a building and dropping rocks on them. There's no reason for hauling off anybody and taking them to jail because they 
claimed to be Jews who had met the Messiah, because that's all they were saying. They weren't inventing a new, Christians weren't inventing a new religion. They were saying, hey, fellow Jews, we've got some good news. We've met the Messiah. Let us tell you about the Messiah. That's, that's not a capital offense. That's not a go-to-jail offense at all. So even though we can understand why Saul freaked out, explaining it is not excusing it. So you, you repent, admit that you were wrong, don't spend a lot of time explaining to people why, well, I was just doing what I thought was in your best interest. I was just trying to, I was just trying to be responsible. I was just trying, or I, I, I just misunderstood what you said and I got confused. You waste everybody's time and you minimize the, the destruction by trying to explain anything. Because explaining it doesn't excuse it anyhow. You just have to say, please forgive me, I was wrong. I was wrong. My attitude was wrong. My actions were wrong. Um, I was blind. I was foolish. And and I'm I'm changing. And that gets us to step through. Step two, throw yourself on God's mercy. We can make all things new. So for Saul, it, it honestly took a long time. Saul, once he met Jesus face to face, it was still like 16 years before he was welcomed back into the church and could start a ministry again because once he realized what a horrible mistake he had made and the fact that Jesus still loved him anyhow, it just blew his mind and he went and he moved out into the, uh, the Saudi Arabia, into the Arabian desert and just hid from everybody and worked worked through what the, the implications of his life had been. Uh, and he just threw himself on the mercy of God so that when you get to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul can say, but the grace of God, I am what I am. So he did a t tremendous amount of damage. Here's the good news, y'all. Super important good news. Saul did a tremendous amount of damage. Hurt a lot of people. We don't even know how many people he hurt personally and how many people he inspired to hurt other people. But in spite of all of that ugliness, Jesus came to him personally and said, Saul, why are, you, why are you persecuting me? I, you and I need to have a talk. Because I have a plan for you. And God turned those, a whole new chapter into, I'm, would, would we have a church today if it hadn't been for Paul's repentance? In spite of all the horrible things he did, he repented, he accepted the grace of God, and a situation that looked lost and hopeless like it's it's all over with now. It can never turn back. We can never go back. It can never be fixed. It's broken and ruined forever. God took and he redeemed that thing and turned 
Paul into a force controlled by the Holy Spirit that birthed the church outside of Jerusalem. The church, you can make an argument that the church would, would have never thrived past Jerusalem and maybe just died out if God hadn't redeemed what Paul had done and given him 30 years of fruitful ministry all around the, Mes the Mediterranean. So, but it all started with Paul repenting and saying, God, please forgive me for thinking it was more important to be right than it was to be controlled by your Holy Spirit and let your power flow through me. So, So let's just stop and think. Is there any place in your life, either right now or maybe in the past, I don't know, is there any place in your life where you might possibly have been blinded by the conviction that you were right? And in that blindness done some damage that God now would like to heal. God would like to heal in you. Maybe heal in the people that were impacted by the way you behaved under that blindness. You understand Nobody's questioning your motives. Nobody's calling you an evil. Nobody's calling you demonically oppressed. Uh, we're just saying that you thought you're right, and it turns out you're wrong. And maybe you've been thinking all these years, there's nothing I can do about it now. Anyhow, I can't change the past, can't change anything. I just have to live with it. Besides, I was right. What was I supposed to do? I, I was right. Uh, the difference between right being right on the principles and right on the attitude. Right in the principles, right on your actions. Um, if the fruit of the Holy Spirit didn't come out of that thing, then it wasn't right. You weren't right. You can't be right. But you can surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit now. And you can repent of that. And you can ask Jesus to fill you with the Holy Spirit in a way that can start to bring redemption and healing to things that were broken. And just, just as simple as saying this, Lord Jesus, thank you for opening my eyes today to see that being right isn't enough. Lord Jesus, please forgive me for my blindness and my rebellion. Lord Jesus, I receive your grace and your forgiveness. Come and heal me and help me heal others. In Jesus' name, amen.